It's our first show of the season, and that means it's time for The Wise Guy. It's a Tuesday Tout Edition with Gene McCaffrey, fantasy writer from The Athletic, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February the 4th. It's show number one of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do start our 2020 season with a great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll be talking with Gene McCaffrey, the fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, about draft strategy, high-impact off-season moves, more than 40 different players, and his boons and banes for 2020. We'll also have a special discount offer for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. It's a big Tuesday Tout Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers right around the corner. It's a great time for our first show of the season. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene McCaffrey, welcome back. It's the sixth or seventh year, I think, that you've let off our HQ Radio season, so thanks for helping us get rolling again in 2020. Baseball, baby. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's fabulous to be here. Gene, uh, what drafts have you participated in so far? It's uh, Draft season seems to be t- uh, 12 months a year now. Yeah, I've only done one draft so far, and that was the draft that started in October at First Pitch Arizona and continued in January. So uh, so I've only done one draft. I'm going to do a few more, but um, and I'm getting ready to do it, but I've just been so busy writing and uh, that I didn't want to interrupt that with any... Uh, with any... Um, with any distractions such as drafts. Although I did do my Sim League draft. We were playing the 2009 season. That's a specialty league. And so uh, so I have done that one too. So I guess two. And you said you're going to be in some drafts. Uh, are they experts drafts, home league drafts? What are you doing? Well, I'll do, uh, I'll do a draft champions um, league because I've got a bizarre strategy I want to try. And... I might do more than one of those. I haven't decided whether I'm going to do the NFBC main event. I would like to, but I don't know if I'm going to have the time. I will be doing Tout Wars Mixed League Auction, and I will certainly be playing DFS just about every day. So you set up a bizarre strategy. Can you fill us in? Yeah, well, there's going to be. Uh, I just did an article for The Athletic that dropped the other day, in which I, uh, my usual last year's bums thing, and it occurred to me as I was doing the article that you could draft an entire team of last year's bums and more. Not only that, but you could draft the whole team of last year's bums and have two of the top ten pitchers with your first two picks. And I think I'm going to try to do that and see if it works. I've never done a draft that had anything close to so structured a, a, a plan going in. Um, but I think that it can nearly be done, or almost exactly can be done, and I think I want to give it a try. Who are the two pitchers? Well, I, just whoever's available in the first two rounds. I mean, I would dearly love for it to be DeGrom and you know Clevenger or DeGrom and Snell or um, DeGrom and Strasburg. 
if I don't get DeGrom, I'm, I'll be happy with Cole, but I, I a little bit prefer DeGrom. I, you know, it's impossible to get Cole and DeGrom, so. But two of the top ten, I think, will be available in the in the uh, in the first two rounds, depending on where I pick. You know, I I saw a tweet by uh, Greg Ambrosius from the NFBC. They're running some leagues right now, the uh, best ball um, draft and holds, and those are ten team leagues. And in fact, somebody in one of those leagues, he said, did get Degrom and Cole with uh, picks one and two in in that draft. Wow. That's very interesting. It does not jive with um, with the usual strategy of the NFBC drafters, who are very, very pitching oriented, and usually one will go uh, right after the other. Um, I think they're probably six and eight now in the in the ADP. I can check that, and I'm going to check that. They are Cole is five and Degrom is seven. So maybe one of those leagues where uh, everybody was zigging and the and the one guy was zagging at the turn or something like that managed to get uh, probably the top two pitchers in the draft in successive picks. And of course that format is a little different. It's a points style league, and uh, starting pitching can really drive you a lot of points in that uh, league format. Uh, you said you're going to be in New York for Tow Wars. I will be in New York for Tow Wars. Yes, hoping to see you. You will indeed. Uh, this time every year, Gene, of course, uh, even if you're not drafting, there's always a lot of chatter about new draft strategies, new changes in draft strategies, new approaches to drafting in general. Uh, either in your uh, own drafting or reading about other drafts, what changes have you noticed uh, or have you taken note of? Well, I do notice that um, as the years go by, pitching continues to go a little higher every year, and I think that's as it should be. It's a risky way to do it, but I think that you really have to do it because the pitchers, the great pitchers, have so much value in, in, in the 5x5 five five league that I think that that's dawned on people and they're willing to take the, the risk. Of course, any pitcher you take that high has to deliver. If he doesn't, you're basically screwed. Um, but if you don't, um, I think you're screwed too because then you're, you know, then you have to get three of the top 25 pitchers or three or four of the top 30, and that's hard to do. And it's, uh, you know, once you get out of the elite pitchers, um, there's a lot more risk. So I think people are smart to be doing that. And the, uh, the other thing I notice is that people seem to be um, erroneously, I think, continuing to obsess over speed. Um, I don't see it. But that's fine with me. You made a case, uh, an interesting case, I thought, uh, that the potential gain of drafting a second pitcher, like going pitcher one and three in the first round and third round, is a viable strategy and indeed an optimal strategy because the gap between the very elite level pitchers at the top to the next tier down is much wider, in fact, than the gap between, say, a second round hitter and a fourth round hitter. There's a According to your analysis, there's a great pool of tremendous hitters, very valuable, very useful hitters in that round three, round four, round five, round six range, and they're all fairly tightly packed in value, whereas if you wait to get your pitching, you're really falling off quite a bit more. Yeah, I I think that that's definitely true. It's easily observable. I mean, you look at the guys who are going in the, you know, in the fourth and fifth round, and you, you know, Chris Bryant, um, Eugenio Suarez, Moncada, um, Rizzo, I mean Goldschmidt. I mean, I don't think he's quite that level. But um, 
when the pitchers go higher, the hitters have to fall. So I, I think that that you know it, it's a sort of natural evolution, and I think that that's the way to play it is to take those pitchers if you can get them and 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 load up on you know in rounds four through seven or eight or whatever it is to uh, on your hitters because there's plenty of really good ones. Yeah, when you mentioned Chris Bryant, the, the thought that jumped into my mind was. I can see a, a lot easier pathway for Chris Bryant to get drafted in the fourth round, say, and return first round value or high second round value than I can Jose Barrios, you know, getting drafted in the in a fourth round and being a top pitcher. It's just so unlikely to happen. It just seems to me that uh, it makes more sense if you're going to bet on anybody to bet on Chris Bryant or Rizzo, as you mentioned, or guys like that, because you can see the upside, but with a guy like Barrios, it's hard to see, and, and that pitcher's in that sort of level, it's a lot harder to see. Yeah, I think it's true. It's funny you mentioned Barrios, because I do kind of like him to to take a little jump up. As nobody seems to be expecting it, but I think that just the fact that he, uh, that he hasn't hurt his arm and that he's been pretty darn good, um, and he's on a really good team, kind of sets him up for a a somewhat unexpected uh, spike in in, uh, in performance. I've also heard, Gene, uh, quite a few experts have been talking about punting or what they call half-punting stolen bases because uh, of the added advantages of having power hitters. It's not practical for NFBC-style leagues that have overall competitions. You have to compete in all the categories. But how do you like it as a strategy for regular uh, redraft leagues where you're not real worried about keepers, you're not real worried about um, trying to fit, fit into some kind of overall competition? It's a standalone league. Do you think punting stolen bases or kind of de-emphasizing stolen bases is a viable strategy? Well, I don't like to do it at the table. I'm not saying that it that it can't be viable. If I did it, I would think I would do it with saves, and I would half punt them by trying to get one reliable clo- uh, closer, if there is such a thing. Um, I don't. I don't think that it's really. You know, the original theory behind punting was that it had to be a really competitive league, and you really weren't trying to win the league. You were trying to finish in the money, and it's viable to do that. Um, the problem is, is that if, if you really dump a category, the problem is, is that you're not a you're not even guaranteed to win the categories you're going after. But but assuming that you do, somebody else is going to finish second and third in those categories without having dumped speed or stolen bases or batting average or whatever it is. And I think they're going to beat you because you know they lose one point to you, but they gain six, seven, eight, nine points off you in the other categories. So. If you want to finish third or fourth, and that's the money in your league, um, yeah, you can do it. But to me, it's a strategy that you might want to adopt during the season once it's clear that you're not going to, you know, that your saves are not going to be great. And even then, I would try to, you know, there are closers every week practically. There's a new closer available. So you might be able to get, you know, four points in the category rather than one, and you might as well try for it if you can. But if it's clear that you can't do it, then go ahead and max out on your other categories. I actually used the uh, custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com just to see what would happen, and I overweighted home runs and underweighted stolen bases by 25% each. You get like a 1.25 value for homers and 0.75 for stolen bases. And actually the, the difference is 
weren't that great. Even, you know, even on guys like uh, Acuna and, and players like that, the, you know, they lost a dollar here or a dollar there. The guys who really suffered were your Malik Smiths and guys like that, where stolen bases is pretty much their entire value. Um, and I and I wonder if if you managed to land a couple of guys early who delivered, uh, you know, the 25 to 30 bags with power like Acuna or even a, a, a lesser number of bags in a similar sort of player, I wonder if at, the, at that point you could say, you know what, I think I'm okay to finish in the middle of the pack in stolen bases. Now I'm going to just abandon them for the rest of the draft and focus solely on getting offensive uh, four-category production. Yeah, well, that's the half dump, and, and it is viable. Uh, but I think that um, there are still stolen bases available at all levels in the draft, and I think that if somebody does do that, I mean, you can pick up, you know, Delano to Shields or Jared Dyson easily in the reserve rounds, and these guys are going to steal 20, 25 bases. They're not going to do anything else. But as reserves, you don't have to use them full-time. So go ahead, you know, take them as reserves, plug them in here, plug them in there. And there's a lot of players. I mean, I think I, what did I write, that there were, I think, 42 players who stole 15 or more bases, and then another 29 who stole between 10 and 14. So it's not like speed is scarce. I mean, just... You know, don't go crazy. Um, don't you know? There's a middle ground there, is what I'm saying. Where you you don't have to dump it. I don't think. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, the first show of 2020, and our guest is Gene McCaffrey from the Athletic. And Gene, we've had an active hot stove league this off season. I'm interested in what you thought about some of the bigger moves. They've been talked to death on other shows. I don't need to belabor the point, but I'm very curious what you think about former MVP Josh Donaldson back in the American League bringing the rain to Minnesota. Well, I think he's going to do pretty much as long as you keep him healthy. I think he's going to do what he did last year. So I think he's a big asset. I think he's going a little too low. Um, of course, there's a ton of great third basemen. Um, but I think he helps the team. I think he's going to help our teams for the for the guys who get him at a little bit of a bargain. And I, by the way, I'd be surprised if he doesn't creep up the draft boards as we get closer to the season. Yeah, Baseball HQ's got him projected in the mid-80s for runs and RBIs. And I wonder if that's a little low considering, you know, that Minnesota lineup has a fair amount of pot. They sure do. And, um, yeah, I, I think that is low for him. Um, possibly accurate in, in runs, but I think you got to at least give him 90 RBIs and probably he'll probably drive in 100. Also, don't be sleeping on Josh Donaldson in on-base leagues because uh, his on-base percentage is always like a good 115 points higher than his average. We're projecting a 265 batting average, which is serviceable, but a 380 on-base. So if you're playing in a league that uses on-base percentage, which you should, um, then Josh Donaldson all the more attractive. Uh, not a player move, Gene, but the Astros signed Dusty Baker to manage the club in the wake of the uh, sign-stealing scandal. He has a pretty good record of being aggressive on the base paths, but the organization has taken a different tack the last couple of years. They've had stolen bases under the major league average the last couple of seasons. How does Baker's signing affect your outlook for stolen bases from those Houston burners like Altuve? I'm not sure that um, Dusty's going to um, use any tactical or strategic things different. I think that his function there is stability. Um, I don't know if that's really going to play out. I think it depends on the players. If they want to run, he will certainly let them run. Um, but if they, if 
they're comfortable with the way they've been doing things, I th- I don't think it's going to change. It, really, it's an unanswerable question, but I'd like to hear somebody ask him just so that we can evaluate his answer. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, because uh, when you look at Altuve's declining stolen base numbers, it seems to have tracked in lockstep with the team overall, and I'm, I'm wondering if the, the general management of Houston, although the general manager's gone too, but if the organization has said to Dusty Baker, we know you like to run, but our numbers say it's not uh, it's not a good strategy or not an optimal strategy. Let's just keep these guys, uh, you know, uh, locked down to station to station type ball that we like to play. And if so, then his managerial bent could be um, sort of overridden by the general managerial bent, and and we'll see how that happens. Uh, Garrett Cole uh, moves from one excellent team to another excellent team. Uh, there are park differences, of course, but what did you make of Garrett Cole moving to the Yankees as a fantasy thing? Well, I think it knocks him down from the number one spot. I mean, I don't think it's, the move is going to stop him from being great, but I think it it is enough to put DeGrom over him between the ballpark and, and there's a higher level of competition, I think, in the AL East um, compared to the AL West last year. This year a little different. Um so I, I, you know, no question, Cole is the number two guy in my mind, uh, but I think that Degrom edges him out now as the number one. Are you not worried about the uh, defensive woes and the struggles that the Mets have had to field a real competitive team insofar as the wins go? Because I know we don't like to chase wins. That's the standard advice we give everybody, never chase wins. But if you're looking at Cole in in New York uh, with the Yankees versus DeGrom in New York with the Mets, it seems like the the, the wins could be a real pivotal, pivotal difference between Cole towards his benefit. They certainly have been in the last two years. Um, but I think that that's more luck than anything else. And I think he's really got, DeGrom really has luck coming to him. And I think it's going to turn around this year. And uh, the Mets defense is going to be a little bit better, I think. I don't think it's going to be as atrocious as it has been. I don't know, man. Peter Alonso at first and uh, and uh, Robinson Cano at second. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, they're, they're, they're better on the left side. I'm more worried with... Uh, a guy like Strowman, um, who, by the way, uh, has cut his ground ball rate hugely after he went to the Mets, no doubt adapting to, to the new reality. Um, but DeGrom is not particularly team-dependent as far as fielding is concerned because he's such a high strikeout guy and because he can get the kind of batted ball that he wants, um, as the really great, rare pitchers do. Um, and I think he's just that good. That he's just going to keep the runs off the board. When he needs a strikeout, he's going to get a strikeout. The Angels signed away Anthony Rendon from Washington. How do you like uh, how Anthony Rendon fits into the Angels lineup, and how does it affect not only him but Mike Trout and the other guys in Los Angeles? Well, he gives him another big bat. I mean, my my thing with Rendon is that I think he was just a little too good last year. I think that nature intends him to have a a 900 OPS rather than a thousand OPS. And I figure he's going to slash like 300, 400, 500. And that's going to be great. I mean, he's going to be a great player. Um, and he'll certainly have the RBIs. Um, of course, on my team, Trout would bat first and Rendon would bat second. But they're not going to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, I think he's going to be fine. 
a sec, if he's your second hitter, I think you're in great shape. I think he's a little over your head if he's your best hitter. Before we go on, I know we've talked about this on the show in the past, Gene, but explain why you think that the batting order should be Mike Trout first, Rendon second, rather than third and fourth, as would be the sort of conventional wisdom. Because, Patrick, the best hitter should get the most plate appearances. Anything else you do, and the second best hitter should get the second most, and the third like that. Anything else you do, you're going to score fewer runs. Now, they know that this is true from uh, score sheet and sim leagues. Real baseball, you know, maybe it's different. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too egg-headed about it. I grant it. But I'd love to see somebody try it because it sure works. It works for the Astros. Look at what they've got a batting leadoff. The other thing about this is is that every time the lineup turns over, you're not looking at Andrelton Simmons or Cole Calhoun. You're looking at Mike Trout. That means he's never gypped out of, a, out of an at-bat, not once all year. And that helps the lineup turn over more. So I think that from a team point of view, the best hitter has to hit first, the second hitter has to hit second. And by the way, I think that the reason that this this goes, you know, this baseball lineup construction thing goes back well over a hundred years, and I think the reason that it originally started was because because of errors. You know, when you look at the on base percentages of these guys in the eighteen nineties and the early nineteen hundreds, they're not really accurate because there were so many errors committed that these guys were getting on base like thirty five, forty more times than the stats show that they did. And, of course, there were no home runs in those days. So the number three hitter was a guy who would, who could hit a double or a triple, which was how power was was more defined. And I think it's just come down from that, and it kind of makes sense in a limited sort of way. And, yes, I understand. Um, but if you look at baseball history, and you look at all the people who have hit leadoff, who had absolutely no business batting leadoff, based solely on our base percentage. It's just one of those things that people do because they've always done it. Um, I don't think there's any real reasoning for behind it. I'd love to see somebody really try to do it because by my calculations, it's going to work. What do you do as you get down towards the bottom of the order, Gene, and, and you're looking at Mike Trout with that big run-producing power and uh, there's nobody on base in front of him. That's the argument that if uh, if all of if your eighth best hitter is hitting eighth and your ninth best hitter is hitting ninth, chances are they're never going to be on base. And this guy's gonna it's going to cost the team uh, the run production that Trout could generate by batting runners in rather than by scoring runs himself. And I I, I think there's no difference if he produces X number of runs and it's more than he would otherwise. Then it's a win for the team. But how do you respond to the argument that? Eighth and ninth guys hitting in front of a of a tremendous hitter really are to his detriment and to the team's detriment. Well, my one concession is that I think that your number nine hitter should be a, a lesser hitter who walks a lot because he f- can function as a catalyst or he can function as a bridge if something is going on at the bottom of the lineup. And it does happen. You know, it's not like these guys never get on base. They do, um, especially as the game goes on. So, yeah, I, I mean, you're going to get those things anyway. You don't want the people making outs getting more at-bats. and uh, You're going to make a certain amount of outs anyway. I think that you distribute, you distribute them better if you do it the other way around. I would not, I would, 
And if it was the NL, I would bet the pitcher eighth. And, and a guy like that, you know, like a, a catcher who walks a lot or a center fielder who hits 250 and walks and steals bases, that would be my number nine hitter. And finally, what about the argument that, you know, if Mike Trout's going to hit 40 home runs in a year, uh, if he's leading off, a good number of them are going to be solo shots instead of three-run homers. And the argument is, doesn't that affect the team's overall offensive output? Not really, because there's very few of them. Um, a lot of times, if you bat Mike Trout third, a lot of his home runs are still going to be with two outs in the first inning. They're going to be solo shots anyway. Um, so I don't think, and the guys who bat behind him are going to hit some home runs too. So I, I, I think that when you get down to the end, you know, when you add it all up at the end, I think you're going to find that you've sacrificed very few two and three run homers for 40 extra plate appearances from Mike Trout. So, uh, to me, it's a, it really is a no-brainer. And I'll tell you something else. In my scorching leagues that I've been in, people are catching on to this. Every league I'm in now, there's at least three teams that are doing this. And so, uh, to me, that proves that, that people are, you know, people are aware of it and people are, people are actually doing it. I bet Babe Ruth first, you know. People think I'm crazy, but then he scores 140 and drives in 100. You know, it reminds me, uh, years ago, uh, I knew a guy who played a lot of score sheet and sim type games, and he told me that he always, he, he was managing his bullpen in the way we've always said that it should be managed with your best guy in the worst situation. And he consistently won his league, and he said, nobody ever followed suit. It was the weirdest thing. He said, uh, here I am pitching my uh, tremendous, what, what would be considered a tremendous setup guy. I'm, I'm putting him in, you know, in the sixth inning because I need to snuff out rallies, uh, and I'm letting some, some you know, schmo get the so-called safe situation because uh, it doesn't matter in winning an actual game. If In piling up saves, it matters, but in those formats, it didn't matter. And he said for four, five, six years, he was running his bullpen differently than everybody else, and nobody ever switched. There's a certain amount of inertia at all levels of baseball, I guess, and maybe that's why Mike Trout's going to hit third this year. Yeah, and also with that strategy, it's not as obvious to the other people in the league what you're doing, I think. Um Whereas with the leadoff hitter, you know, when they see Babe Ruth batting leadoff, they say, well, um, but with the bullpen, I don't think they, they might not notice. They might not be paying that much attention to other people's teams. I do the same thing, by the way, in my siblings, as much as, much as the sim allows it, by the way. Yeah, that's right. They changed them from time to time to force you to use the closer and the closer role. Uh, my friend uh, told me that, too, and he was kind of mad about it. Uh, Madison Bumgarner uh, moves to Arizona. They've got the humidor there, so that maybe the home run concerns with the park are a little bit abated. But what do you think of Madison Bumgarner's value now that he's in Arizona? Well, he's got one, one thing going for him, and that's really good defense in the outfield in Arizona. Other than that, his road decibels, the last couple of years have been bad. ERA over five, whip over one point four. I don't, you know, I'll take a shot with him as a home start guy, but I have no shot of getting him at that at that point. And it's still a hitter's park, not a great hitter's park, but it's still a hitter's park, especially earlier in the year when they have the roof open. Mike Moustakis goes to Cincinnati. Uh, Mike Moustakis has been a kind of a sneaky value in some years past. What do you think of him this year playing in that ballpark? 
Well, you know, it's interesting that he was he should have been expected to hit more home runs in Milwaukee last year, but he didn't. Um, but I think that's just kind of a fluky thing, and I think it should be ignored. And, you know, this is a guy who hit, what, 38 homers in Kansas City? I mean, to me, that's his baseline in Cincinnati, his baseline. He's got a shot at 40, and uh, without killing your batting average, he's another, you know, a good guy to... Uh, to pick up, especially at second base, um, and with the flexibility too. I mean, I think he's a real good pick this year. Yeah, I've, uh, ADP's around the eighth round, and uh, Baseball HQ's projecting 36 homers, uh, close to 100 RBIs, round 80 runs, and a 262 batting average. Again, not great, but it's not killing you either. And on base percentage is 326. You could say the same thing about Mike Moustakas. He seems like a screaming bargain at that rate, and I wonder if we're going to see his ADP start to climb. Would not surprise me at all. Uh, Yasmani Grandal goes to Chicago in the White Sox. What do you think? Certainly helps the White Sox. Um, um, I, you know... I'm wondering how much he's going to help their pitchers because he's got a, a good framing numbers the last couple of years, which I think are real. I'm not really uh, – I, w- I want to see consistency in those numbers because I don't think that the the calculation is entirely accurate, but I don't know what it is, so I can't tell you how. But the other thing is is that when it comes to framing, people seem to be ignoring the umpires, and the umpires are the guys who make those decisions. So that's why I think you see a lot of catchers who were minus one year, plus another year, minus the year after that. Um, but he's a good defensive catcher, and I think he's going to help their young pitchers. And he's been about as consistent as a catcher could be offensively. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's a good Catchers aren't going that high anymore. Um, that's a bit of a change that catchers have you know, gone lower over the last, what, in years or so, as it becomes more and more obvious that they're uh, really risky to take high. And where he's going now, I think he's a fine pick, as are all the top catchers. Yeah, I think somewhere in the seventh round uh, near near the turn uh, is what the last time I checked. Uh, another good uh, on-base percentage guy, by the way, if you're playing in those leagues. Uh, you mentioned the advantage to the White Sox pitchers. Are you adding any value to guys uh, like keeping in the back of your mind maybe, you know, if you're choosing between Lucas Giolito and somebody else in that tier that you might think, you know, this could be the year because of the catching? It could be a tiebreaker for me. Um, I don't want to place too much value on it because I think you know, the uh, as I say, there are three participants there, the pitcher, the catcher, and the umpire, and to give the pitcher all the credit or the catcher all the credit is a little bit dangerous, but it could be a tiebreaker for me. For instance, at the end, um, with like a Michael Kopech, you know, I might be more inclined to take him over a slow and steady wins the race kind of guy. And finally, also with the White Sox, Nomar Mazzara has been very consistent in Texas, but a lot of people have always found him disappointing because he hasn't grown as much as they would have liked, and he often got drafted on the expectation of growth that didn't pan out. But he's been a reasonably productive guy. Uh, Is anything better for Nomar Mazzara, change of scenery perhaps, uh, those kinds of considerations? But what do you think of Nomar Mazzara moving to the south side? Well, you know, I think he's a pretty good play. Uh, yeah, he hasn't grown, but he hasn't gone backwards either. He's still really young. Um, I think he's uh, 
you know, at the point where he's going, I'm looking up his ADP now, and I'm trying to find him in a... Um, 248, according to... Going high. And uh, so where he's going, I don't think he's going to hurt anybody, and he's got a chance to be, um, a, a, you know, a really productive and a guy who could, could break out at any time. You know, the old age 26 with, with experience, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly age 26, but he's certainly got a lot of experience. And I think he's worth taking as certainly as a fourth outfielder. Gina, this has been fantastic as I knew it was going to be. I always look forward to these conversations. So let's take a quick break here. Going to let the folks know about BaseballHQ.com, what's going on at the site. And uh, then we'll come back and talk about some more players for 2020. Sounds good. Gene McCaffrey is a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene will be back in a sec. And in the meantime, let me bring you up to date on why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business and give you a special offer so you can find out for yourself. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey lays out all the BaseballHQ.com tools that you can use to get ready to dominate your 2020 fantasy season from draft day right through your YooHoo shower. In an excellent research article, researcher Eric Floramonte creates a quality of batted ball process metric and uses it to look at batter performance. This you gotta see. And in the Reliever Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at potential bargains in the bullpens by early ADP versus skill sets. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, and they're why I call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And with the Baseball HQ site shifting into high gear for draft season, I've finagled a special deal for you. When you go to the site to get a site subscription or your copy of the Forecaster Annual or Minor League Baseball Analyst Annual, Use the promo code PATRICK, all in capital letters, at checkout, and you'll get an instant 10% discount. That's 10% off subscriptions and books with the promo code PATRICK at checkout. Baseball HQ, already a great deal for fantasy owners at the regular price, but it's 10% better with promo code PATRICK at checkout. Smith, corks one into right down the line. It may go. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. Gene, welcome back. Hi. Gene, you made your name in our business with your player analyses in the Wise Guy Baseball Annual, and I know you still look comprehensively at players across the game every offseason, partly for The Athletic, partly for your own preparation. Uh, let's talk about some hitters, first of all, and I'd like to start with Ronald Acuna of Atlanta, who's starting a lot of leagues as the number one guy. What do you say uh, as about Ronald Acuna as a potential first overall pick? Uh, I have no problem at all with it. Um, I think that of the of the guys who are going first, he's a guy who has not established a ceiling yet. Um, if he carries a little bit more risk than than Trout or Yelich, um, I'm excluding the pitchers here because I would take them first. But, um, you know, I, I think it's 6 of one half a dozen or the other. I, I don't think that you could go far wrong by taking him. So if people want to take him there, I think more power to him. 
So you're, would you take DeGrom first overall if you had the first overall pick? Yes. Another intriguing Atlanta hitter is Ozzie Albies, uh, 24 homers in 2018 and 19, 14, 15 bags those two years. Uh, currently around ADP 40 in the NFBC leagues, but could he or should he be going even higher? Um, I think probably he's going where he, where he should, but he's got a good chance to be going higher next year. So I think it's really good to take him there. Um, I, I was really impressed by how much he improved against right-handed pitching, which is what he needed to do. Um, and I really like that in a young player when, when it's really clear what he needs to do, and he does it. And he did it. And so that tells me that he has not reached his ceiling yet. And a guy who's probably going to hit at the top of the order, number two probably, which is a, a benefit, as you said, because there's more plate appearances, more chances to wreak havoc. Uh, you you also like uh, Keston Hayura of Milwaukee as much as Albies, uh, you said, uh, to the point where you say you would make it a point to get one or the other of them. Why the interest in Hayura, and why do you compare him to Albies, who's a really good player? Well, I mean, he put up five cats in the major leagues. Uh, he strikes out a little too much, but who doesn't? Um, I think only the fact that he got hurt keeps him from going higher. And as with Albies, I think he's a guy who has a really good chance to be, to go maybe even as high as the first round next year. You know, the last time I checked, I think he was going earlier than Albies. Uh, he's, from what I see, he's a little behind him. Albies is 38 and... Yeah, 38 and 44. Yeah, I saw Hayura, the last time I looked, this was a while ago, I wrote it down in my notes, but it was 43-48. And, uh, but again, they're, they're, they're very similar players in very similar spots. Uh, in discussing Raphael Devers of the Red Sox, you advised fantasy owners to ignore calls for regression because you said Devers has not established his mean. This is a huge point, so please explain to our listeners what you mean by he hasn't established a mean, so the regression is a little bit flawed as a concept for him. Right. Well, I mean, people use the word regression as shorthand, and it, it seems to have become shorthand for get worse, but that's not what it means. I mean, it is regression to the mean, and if you have not established a mean, you can't regress to it. Um, he's still young. He just belted the hell out of the ball last year. Um, I think there's every reason to expect him to do that again. And he could still get better. Um, and that's the way he should be drafted, I think. Not as a guy, well, he had a great year. He's not going to have as good a year this year. Uh, you know, maybe it won't be quite as good, but it could be better, too. At what point in a guy's career, Gene, are you comfortable that he has established a mean? Well, that's a hell of a question, and, I, and I, you know, I don't really know the answer to it. I, I think that you got to take these things on an individual basis, see what he has done, you know, look at the underlying metrics and see what he can do, and then see what happens. And then after, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, three, four years at a certain level, okay, that that would certainly do it, except when it doesn't. Um, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry if I can't really answer it. 
No, that's fair enough because, uh, you know, the, the other, I think, flaw in the concept of it, of regressing to the mean is that I think it started when, when uh, Voris McCracken discovered this hit rate thing, the BABIP thing, and said uh, for pitchers, everybody regresses to around 30% because it's a, like a, a global mean that you can measure year after year and, and it's pretty close and everybody's pretty close to it. But then we started reading about or determining for ourselves that there are flaws in that theory because sometimes certain pitchers, especially highly skilled ones, establish different means. They don't regress to 30% hit rates and 70% strand rates. They regress to, you know, 24% hit rates and and 80% strand rates because they're better pitchers. And we have to say just because a guy is is stranding 75% of his hitters, uh, 75% of his base runners, sorry, doesn't mean he has to go backwards to 70% because that's what everybody does. And I think you're right about the idea that people are using the term regression to mean falling back, but I think they're also using it, even if they don't mean falling back, they do mean that a, an individual player must move towards the the global mean, and I don't think that's true either. No, it isn't true. I mean, it is generally true that the game of baseball is pulling everybody to 500. You know, you win one, you lose one. Um, but just because that's generally true, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of exceptions, and that's our job is to figure out what those exceptions are. Right. And, and, and I think that's a really important thing for, uh, listeners and people who just play the game for fun and have actual jobs and stuff to keep in mind when you read that word regression, ask yourself whether it passes your smell test. You know, if Garrett Cole or Justin Verlander has a really good two or three years of, of 75 or 76% strand rates, it is by no means a sure thing or even a bettable proposition that they're going to regress to 70% because that's what everybody does uh, in, en masse. It doesn't necessarily apply. And the same thing is true for hitters, of course, too. Uh, Jordan Alvarez, Gene, goes into most leagues as a DH only, and that causes, uh, some people say, tactical issues with draft and roster construction. How do you think the DH only situation for Jordan Alvarez should affect his value and his perceived value? Very little. Um, I, I I think the one little problem with Alvarez last year was that he was taking too many strikes early in the count. And to me, that's the easiest problem in the world to fix. And I assume that he's going to work on fixing it. That said, um, I, you know, he, he nailed lefties last year. That's much more important. And almost certainly he's going to play out. So I mean, there's a lot of p- players with multi-position eligibility these days, more every year. So I think that what used to be a minor factor that he was DH only is even more minor than it used to be. Yeah, here's a guy who's going well into the third round, and uh, you know, here's a player I think even considering the DH problem in tactical planning. I think I might go a little earlier on Jordan Alvarez than sort of 40th overall. Uh, Tim Anderson batting champion, Gene, sounds weird to those of us who've been watching him for his whole career, but there he is, Tim Anderson batting champion. What's your take on Anderson for this year? Um, I think that his eye ratio will get better and his batting average will get worse. I think that that's automatic. Um, I don't think that, you know, the interesting thing about Anderson is that he had the worst eye ratio in baseball, and he had the best batting average. 
if strike zone judgment was what it's really all about, that couldn't have happened. But it did happen because it's not that important. What's more important is that he hits the ball hard before the at-bat is resolved with a strikeout or a walk. That's a real skill. And, uh, you know, he's not going to hit 335 again, but I think it's you have to say he's going to hit 300 again. Yeah, I did a study a few years ago for Baseball HQ looking at the relationship between I-ratio and uh, walk rate and batting average, and it, there isn't one really because, uh, as you say, a good hitter can stop the at-bat before there's a walk or strikeout to even be counted. Uh, I know you think Orlando Arcia in Milwaukee could be a bargain, even though or perhaps because Milwaukee acquired Luis Arias, which appears to create a playing time problem for Arcia. Why are you optimistic? Uh, well, I see that Urias uh, uh, got hurt, uh, so that opens up. Uh, he may not be ready. Um, R.C. is one of these guys that, you know, 20 years ago, we would have been drafting him in the eighth round because shortstop was not the, nowhere near the position it is now. Um, I don't think he's a great player or anything like that, but he's been around a long time. He's a really good defensive player. He's got some power and he's got some speed. Um He's a guy that, that could develop, and nobody expects anything from him. Um, so, to me, he's a he's an ideal kind of reserve pick, and at worst, he'll fill it in for an injury for you, uh, but he still has upside. Cody Bellinger is going fifth overall by ADP in 2020 drafts. How do you feel about that, given his 2019 was so good? Well, you know, I had him at 28 bucks in, uh, in Tout Wars, and uh, my partner, John Bennett, looked at me and said, I don't know, <laughs> but I was right. So listen to me when I tell you that he's going to come down a little bit this year. And it's not because I don't think he's good. I think he's really good. I just think that, you know, he was at the top of his game last year. Um, also, he certainly has the speed. He could steal 30 bases, but Dave Roberts ironically, is not a running manager. Um, so I think he's going to hit 290 with 38 home runs and 15 stolen bases, which is a first-round season. But I just don't see that he should be taken over Story or, or Lindor or maybe even Nolan Arenado. You know, he's not going to steal any bases, but he is going to be rock-solid for his four categories unless he gets traded, which I don't think he will. You've always been a proponent of targeting last year's bum. Uh, earlier you said you're planning on basing an entire draft on the idea. Uh, your top candidate this year, Andrew Benintendi of the Red Sox. Uh, what is it about Benintendi that makes him a good last year's bum candidate? And in general, what makes one player last year's bum and another player just a bum? <laughs> well, I mean, he's done, first of all, he's done it before. Um, that's number one. Um, he had a certain level of expectation, a very high level of expectation on him last year, which he did not meet. But when I was researching him, I happened to notice that there were six different reported injuries for him last year. That's the whole story. You know, he, and then, you know, I watched him during the year, the eye test, as you mentioned before. He's still Andrew Benintendi. He had 40 doubles in 138 games. He's in a great lineup. Um, he should not be falling to where he is. He's going to be a five-category player. Uh, he So let's exploit it. That's the trick, isn't it, though, exploiting it? Because, uh, you know, once he falls to a certain point, 
everybody starts looking at him as a potential bounce back. Even if even players who aren't really potential bounce backs start to appear to be that way because they fall so far from the previous season that everybody thinks, well, he has to bounce. Even a dead cat bounces, you know, if you throw it hard enough. And uh, I. I I think I think you're right about Benintendi, but I'm just cautioning that just because a player fell uh, precipitously doesn't mean he's gonna bounce back. It's just you have to look at the deeper situation, and in this case, uh, injuries. I had Benintendi on my uh, uh, American League tout last year, and of course he was very disappointing. But you could see watching him that the, it wasn't physically right, and if he's 100, percent to me the new concern gene is that is he one of these guys who's going to be like a hurt a lot and if if so now we've got a reason to kind of temper our expectations because a guy who gets six injuries in a year assuming they're not fluky things like hit by pitch and stuff you start to think you know he's just one of these tightly wound guys who's going to get hurt a lot for his whole career it is possible uh, yes i agree with that but you know last year he was going to the low 30s and now he's over 100 um, I think it's an over, clearly an overreaction. And again, I think the way to deal with that problem that you mentioned is don't go after him so much, so aggressively in AL-only leagues, but do go after him in mixed leagues where it's easier to find a, a competent replacement. The Toronto Blue Jays had an interesting season. They they didn't play well. Their pitching was disastrous. But they debuted three impressive rookies and uh, really got some shining moments from an almost rookie. Uh, and all of these guys have solid baseball pedigrees. Uh, of course, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., a disappointment, but uh, Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, and Lourdes Gurriel, all of whom have uh, you know this long lineage of baseball excellence, they were all pretty good. So as you go into to this year's drafts, how are you looking at these four guys, Guerrero, Bichette, Biggio, and Gurriel? Well, they are, of course, four different players. Um, I'm, generally speaking, the sons of major leaguers are better than they, people expect them to be. And I'm talking about like guys like EY Jr. and Tony Gwynn Jr. These guys had made real major league careers. They were better than they were expected to be. Um, and I think that's because they grew up around the game, and they, you know, there aren't going to be, there aren't, there isn't going to be the issue where all of a sudden they're making a lot of money and they're in a different lifestyle. These guys grew up with it; they know what it's like. They have that. That's a tremendous advantage, I think, um, and it does play out on the field. Now, Guerrero. Well, I mean, yeah, he could be great this year. Uh, my take on him is that he's sloppy. You know, he's sloppy at bat. He's sloppy in the field. Um, he's sloppy at the table, uh, you know. <laughs> um, but he could grow up tomorrow. Um, so I'm going to bid him as being good, not great. Um, Bichette, I think, has tremendous potential based on the fact that how well he hit same side pitching as a rookie. Um, Biggio, I think, is going to be a really good player, um, better than his minor league numbers indicate, because he hasn't failed. He's never really failed. Um, and I think that as he gets used to it, um, he's going to be a star. I think he's a good pick this year um, at the level where he's going. And Gurriel um, kind of surprised me last year at how good he was. And I was really, really wanted to see how he finished off. Um, but I think he's kind of a sneaky opportunity this year. I mean, he's not going too high. Maybe third outfielder level, and that's that could be a really 
Nice sneaky little pick there. I like his power. And I hate to keep banging this drum, but Biggio in particular, really good on-base guy. Guerrero's a really good on-base guy as well, so if you're playing in that format, you got to add a couple of bucks to their values. Uh, you said that Michael Conforto of the Mets could be a more useful hitter if he hit fewer home runs. That seems impossible, but how does that work? Well, you know, I'm not went into this. I'm really kind of speculating when I say it, but that's the kind of hitter he came up with. Came up as, uh, you know, a, a decent power hitter, but a guy who was going to hit 300 with a lot of doubles. Um, I think in today's game, um, with so much with so much uh, reliance on our base, base percentage, you need a guy who's going to hit some singles and doubles. And I think that if he could hit, you know, 10, more, 10 12 more doubles and 20 more singles, that might help the team more than hitting 10 more home runs. I'm speculating. I, you know, I could be wrong. but And I don't expect him to do that. I, I expect him to continue what he's doing. And I think that it's possible that we haven't seen his best yet. You know, the what-if game, I like to play it. We all like to play it. But, you know, sometimes it's like a kind of a red herring thing. Um, I know that that's what Keith Hernandez thinks. Um, and he's the Mets broadcaster, and uh, who's really good. And... Um, I think Keith thinks that because that was the kind of hitter Keith was. But it's a really good kind of hitter to be. And I, I think that the, the major leagues need, need more of those kind of guys. Well, certainly the amount of singles that's getting hit is plummeting, and it's changing the, the appearance of the game, and not for the better, if you ask me. But uh, the home runs are where the money is, I guess, and the, and the, the uh, guys with the pocket protectors in the front offices say you know the, that hitting 30 home runs is better than hitting you know, 40 extra uh, singles and doubles. So I guess we'll see. Uh, I don't think it's headed in the right direction, frankly. Uh, your analysis of Wilson Contreras is that he could be the top catcher in all of baseball when all the dust settles at the end of the season. Why Wilson Contreras? Well, in a disappointing year, he slugged 533. Um, I, I don't call that a disappointing year. I mean, it was more injury-based than anything else. Um, you know, he's 28 years old. There's a great age for a catcher to be hitting. Um, he's got a great floor. Um, and he's not going too high. I think he's a really good value pick this year. Some analysts have said we have to reduce our expectations on Mitch Garver because of plate appearance limits, but you say those concerns are overblown. What points to more plate appearances for Garver in Minnesota? Well, the absence of Castro, uh, for one, uh, and the fact that you, you know, when you slug 600, you have to play. When you slug 500, you have to play. Even if at, at first base you have to do that, much less at catcher. So this guy's going to be getting in there all the time. I noticed, you know, in my October draft, I got him at pick 151. And now his ADP is 125, and he's the fourth red catcher. And you're going to see it go higher still, I think. He's going to be in the top 100 right about even with Grandel, which is, I think, is where he belongs. Nico Goodrum of Detroit has some things about him to recommend a, a pick maybe later on in the draft, but he seems to strike out more than a lot of people are comfortable with, or is 29%, 30%, that's where he was in 2019. Is that now a playable strikeout level? Yeah, you know, at the right point of the draft, sure. I mean, he's not, he's got the power of the speed, um, you want to cover your batting average or on base percentage before you take him. 
But once you've done that, I think he's a real nice pick at the end to give you that extra power, speed, jolt. He's capable of uh, stealing a lot more bases than he has based on his sprint speed. You're also optimistic about Ramon Laureano in Oakland. Uh, what's your view there? Same thing, um, except he's going to hit for a higher batting average. Um, he's got all the tools, He's got, and he's done it in the major leagues. So I don't think that uh, he's going a lot higher, and he should go a lot higher. I think the public's on him. Uh, he's what? He, you know, he's going 20, 25 in the outfielders, and I think that's where he should go. You really like Gavin Lux's abilities, uh, but you really fear for his playing time situation for obvious reasons. What's your take on Lux, and does he have a chance to break in and amass enough plate appearances to be an impact player? It's all up to the manager, um, and that's why I'm probably not going to get him this year, and it's unfortunate because I really like him as a player. But, you know, the way the Dodgers have played it the last several years you know, they're, they platoon and they they keep platooning, and especially with young guys. Last year he only had twelve plate appearances against left-handed pitching. Um, I don't see that he's going to get a lot more. I would love to be proved wrong with that, but I just, you know, I, I have a hard time uh, taking him, you know, as my second baseman. I would take him as my middle infielder later, but I don't think I'm going to get him at that point. I think it's a shame. Yeah, the thing about those young guys, there's always uh, uh, players at your table, or almost always owners at your table who, who are going to, they like gambling on those kind of guys. That uh, The only thing that's standing between him and a really big season, it looks like, is the potential for not being able to play too much. We haven't projected for 400 at-bats at Baseball HQ, and that seems maybe even a little generous, uh, maybe counting on him to come up later in the season and start playing regularly. But, gosh, if he broke camp and and you knew he was going to get 550 or 600 at-bats, all of a sudden he looks like a really strong play. So like guys like to gamble, but I'm not one of them. Uh, like you, I noticed that Yohan Moncada swung more in 2019, missed more in 2019, and still managed to strike out less in 2019. How do you explain this, and how does it color your projection of Moncada for 2020? Um, it's the same thing as with Tim Anderson. Um, he's the at bat is resolved with a hard hit ball before it has a chance to be a strikeout or a walk. Um, this is what everybody expected of Marcotta. Um I know that his you know he had a four hundred BABIP. Okay, okay, that's too high, but don't expect it to be under three fifty, given his hard hit rate and. Given his, you know, his obvious power, he could steal more bases too. Um, I, he's a really good player, so ignore the strikeout rate. And in fact, as he gets older, it should come down a little bit. So he's going to be fine. You know, I remember years ago when, after the first studies came out talking about Babbitt for pitchers at thirty percent, everybody immediately leaped to the conclusion that the same thing was going to be true of hitters. And I remember thinking, well, wait a second, how can Manny Ramirez, who was a, you know, a, a hard-hit ball guy extraordinaire at the time, have the same BABIP or expected BABIP as Pete Orr or somebody like that, you know? And uh, so I went and looked at it, and sure enough, it turns out that individual batters set these uh, much higher, much lower 
uh, BABIP levels based on their ability to hit the ball hard. And I think that's something that sometimes we forget and we tend to, getting back to the regression discussion, everything starts to, people want to swing everything back to some kind of standard level across the entire game and it just doesn't make sense. So you said that you're going to be waiting on Jorge Soler till next year. What is it about all those home runs that you're suspicious of? Well, he just kept getting better and better uh, month by month. And towards the end, he was Barry Bonds. And I think it's established or should be established that he's not Barry Bonds. So while it's even possible that he'll continue to, uh, to hit well starting the season, if he did and I owed them, I would trade him in May. Um, he's not Barry Bonds. He's a high strikeout, high fly ball hitter. They have slumps. Uh, their streaks can be really long, longer than a year. But if he has that kind of streak, he's going to have that kind of slump too. So I'm going to back off and I'm going to wait. And I think he's going to be a lot cheaper next year. And then I'll pound on him again. Similarly, uh, you're not willing to bet on a repeat for Eugenio Suarez and his big home run season. Uh, what's the reasoning there? Well, it's not so much that I that I'm down on him because I'm not. I, I mean, I think I do think he's going to hit 40 home runs, but I think 49 times it's been done where um, hitters have hit 49 or more, 48 or more home runs in the season. And if you look at the guys who've done it more than once, the worst hitter of the bunch is Harmon Killebrew. And other than that, you're talking about Willie Mays and Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle. Um, I don't think Eugenio Suarez, as much as I love him, is that good. Um, I don't think he's as good as Killebrew because when Killebrew was at the same age, he did 40 home runs three times already. Um, So I think we should just back off a little bit on him this year. Not a lot. It's a great lineup. He's a really good hitter. But 48 home runs is just a little bit of a stretch. Glaber Torres of the Yankees had a good year, Gene, uh, and he's going late second round this year as a result. You think that's too early. Why do you think so, and where do you think his proper slot would be? Well, you know, it might not be too early, but there's an awful lot of really good shortstops. And guys who are going later than he is, who are every bit as good, uh, you, you know, let's see, who's going to Mondesi, Bogarts. Javier Baez, even Machado, you know, these guys are really good players, and I don't see why you should reach for Glaber uh, Torres in the second round when you can get those guys later uh, who are to be just as good. A little b- bump for being uh, second and short eligible, I guess, but not a lot of bags there for second-round guys, and there are those uh, second-round guys who are going to produce across the categories and not just pick up, you know, seven, eight stolen bases, you, you may, might might could be looking for more, as they used to say. Uh, speaking of uh, power-speed combinations, you say you don't understand why people keep taking Trey Turner in the first round. The wisdom of the crowd says it's a good play. What's your argument with the crowd? Well, when it looked like he was going to steal 60 bases before 2018, it's arguable, sure. Um but then he stole, what, 43 in 162 games, and that um, that's not special. I mean, it's not special enough to give up 20 home runs and 40 RBIs in the first round. Um, I don't see why anybody takes him over Trevor Story, who's automatic for, for five categories. Um, so 
you know, I'm not saying he's not a great player. I'm just saying I, I think you're sacrificing something if you take him in the first round. Does that unfairly de-emphasize the importance of runs in the first round? Uh, on a runs-produced basis, according to the projections at Baseball HQ, you're looking at about 180 or so combined runs and RBIs for Story and about 170 for Trey Turner. And then, of course, there's an eight-home run difference. But it seems like you could argue that the 44 bags versus 20-ish bags does make up the difference in that case and the, and the advantage in run scored. Well, if that's what they really do, yes. Uh, but I don't think that uh, Turner's going to score any more runs than Story. Um, you know, let's not forget Coors Field here. Um, I mean, Story to me is, you know, he's a 100-100 guy, um, whereas Turner is a 170 guy or a 160 guy. Um, so it's a question of where you project him. If you disagree with my projections, then okay, then you're you know then it's me against you and let's see who's right, um, which is fine. I mean that's why we play. The common wisdom again is to be sure to get speed early. We talked about that before. It's another pearl of wisdom with which you disagree. You say speed is actually available all the way through the draft, and uh, one example could be Jonathan VR. And you set his stolen base over under at 35 bags, despite relatively pedestrian speed metrics. Why do you have confidence in VR as a stolen base threat? Well, where he's going, um, in the, which is the uh, NL East, I mean, they have the they have Real Muto, who can throw runners out, um, and then a bunch of really terrible catchers. Um, Florida is Miami's going to let him run. Um, I don't think, by the way, that he's a th- that VR is a third round pick, but I do think he's going to steal thirty five bases. And I, I don't want the listeners to think that I'm anti speed early. I'm all for it. I just don't want to uh, sacrifice power for it. I prefer, you know, a twenty stolen base guy with his, with the thirty home runs. You know, a story type. Um, I'm, I'm all for that. Even a Mondesi, you know, who's going to. Uh, Who's the third round guy? Will probably hit fifty to twenty runs and and steal forty bases. So I'm not against that. I just don't want to uh, sacrifice the power for the speed. Another guy who could get a lot of bags is Colton Wong. Uh, he's at uh, round fifteen or so. So there's another stolen base threat that you can get so deep in the draft that uh, it 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 allows you to gather up the power you need earlier. Exactly. And uh, speaking of Colton Wong, I noticed that he's going a lot later than Garrett Hampson. And to me, this is crazy. Um, Because Garrett Hampson may not play. Um, And if he doesn't start hot, he's not going to play. And we're going to have a repeat of what we had last year. And I had him last year. And it turned out to be a mistake. Because once you you start slowly on the Rockies, they're going to bury you. And... That's what they did to him last year, and it may happen again. Whereas Wong, you know, he's stolen bases. You know, he's going to two seventeen. That's a beautiful thing. Um, he's not going to hurt your batting average. He's not going to hit a ton of home runs. But at that level of the draft, he's a nice little building block. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from the Athletic. And Gene, let's go to the pitchers for 2020. Uh, we talked about DeGrom over Cole as a top fantasy pitcher, but 
maybe again quickly recap why. Well, because Cole is moving to Yankee Stadium, which is a very tough place to pitch, and I think the level of competition in the AL East is a little worse. Not enough to stop Cole from being great, but enough to keep him from the top spot. In discussing Jose de Leon, you noted his obvious skills and obvious potential, but on the other hand, you also noted, and I think this is a really important thing for all fantasy players to keep in mind, two very well-run organizations, especially on the pitching side, Tampa and the Dodgers, have given up on Jose de Leon. Where's the balance now when we look at a guy like Jose de Leon weighing the things we see in the metrics versus the things that people who are way smarter than us about these kinds of things see? Well, that's why I call this a challenge trade, because the other part of it is that the Reds, who were the surprise pitching team of last year, nobody expected the Reds to have a good staff last year, and they started out well, and they kept it up all year. So that's the third organization. So they're kind of challenging each other and say, yeah, I think we can make something out of this guy. Um, so the, the uh, Daily Olds thing is that he's got really good movement on his fastball and changeup, and I think the Reds are thinking, well, will we teach him a breaking ball and he can start for us, or we'll leave him with his two pitches and make him a key bullpen guy. And so, you know, the battle lines are drawn, and I think it's really interesting. That, you know, he's not a guy who who's going high, he's going way low, but it's just an interesting thing to watch, and to me... Um, you know, in a 50-man NFBC-style draft, uh, once we get to the 40th round, he's, he's the kind of guy that I like to take. Cincinnati also made some news, Gene, by hiring Kyle Body, the guy from Driveline, and he's going to be in charge of kind of setting up how their pitching system works, and he's going to obviously have a key role to play in pitcher development uh, that kind of news, how does it affect your viewpoint on the pitchers of a staff like that when they, when they add a guy like that, which seems to be a very forward-looking move in the same way that Minnesota added the, the guy from college to be their pitching coach out of, kind of, uh, out of nowhere? What's your response to those kind of front office moves insofar as they affect the ability of pitchers to have rise to new levels or, or to fix what's wrong? Oh, I think it matters a lot. And uh, I'm really watching that. And, and I wish we had a. Uh, I wish that Driveline would release their client list. Who's coming to see us this winter? Boy, well, that would help us, wouldn't it? Yeah. I tried to find it, and I couldn't. But you know, we're going to hear after the season starts. So and so spent the winter at Driveline, and here he is with a 2.3 ERA on May 15th. And we're going to say, "Damn, I wish I knew that." Uh, so I think it's really worth paying attention to who goes to driveline. And, you know, and, and there's probably others, too, that I don't know about, and we'll find out about them as we go along. But, you know, it's a thing that works, and it's a really it's a great approach. And people who, ballplayers who, who are smart enough to say, this is what I need to do, and here, I'm, this is how I'm going to go about doing it, that's what we want. You know, that's, that's, that's the opposite of complacency and, that's really what I want. 
Yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing that uh, you mentioned earlier that the kind of player you like is a player who says I need to fix something and then goes and does something about fixing it rather than relying on somebody else to fix it for him or just to to guts it through with, you know, spitting on it and rubbing some dirt on it kind of approach. I think it's a really important thing as well and I'm very interested in Cincinnati pitchers in general this year as good as they were. I wonder if there's a a, a step up coming in Cincinnati for pitching and everybody's afraid of them because of the park. Yeah, well, you know, that park has been beaten before. It's not, you know, it's a good park for home runs. Okay. But, you know, plenty of pitchers have been really good allowing a lot of home runs. Uh, Cole and Verlander, um, that should be all that needs to be said. It's the, the park can be beaten. Don't be afraid of it. And Todd Zola says that parks that generally play well for home runs because of the cozy confines also play less well for runs overall because it's harder to get a fly ball into the gaps because there's, you know, they don't have to cover so much ground and stuff like that. So that there's always a give and take with a park, and it's a mistake to just look at one stat about the park and say now I understand the entire environment of that place. Uh, speaking of parks, there's a new one in Texas, and somebody who's going to be in it is Dylan Bundy, who leaves Baltimore, and that should just be a sigh of relief for everybody anyway. But how interested should we be? in a guy who's been a sleeper every year for the last five years but never woke up? Well, I mean, I think you should expect these new parks to play neutral until proven otherwise. Not because it's right, but because the you won't be that wrong. Uh, in any case, I mean, it's logical to, to assume a less hitter-friendly environment, which will help him, uh, whether it's going to help him enough, I don't know. Um uh, I think I would take him as as a speculative late reserve pick. I would kind of shy away from him in AL leagues where you'd be stuck with him all year if he's the same old Dylan Bundy, uh, meatball artist. Uh, I, you know, I'm mildly a little bit more interested in him than I was, but I'm not enthusiastic. I mentioned the Dodgers earlier as a top quality organization when it comes to developing and evaluating pitchers, and it seems like every year there's a debate about how to evaluate Clayton Kershaw. How are you valuing Kershaw for 2020? Um, I have him at number 24. He's averaged 166 innings for four years. That, to me, is definitely not an ace. It is not even a number two pitcher because you got to make those innings up. And... For, on top of that, his velocity's down three miles an hour from 2017. Um, I'm sorry, he's not risk-free, and he's going too high, and if if I'm wrong about that, well, more power to him. In Oakland, they've got a couple of young guys that have excited a lot of people, Jesus Lazardo and Frankie Montas, and you noticed that Lazardo was going higher than Montas, and you said you'd don't get why that uh, Montez should be higher. What is your analysis of these two very high potential starters in Oakland? Well, I'm not knocking Lizardo. I think he's really good, but I don't think that uh, he'll. He's going to pitch 150 innings and you know maybe change. Uh, whereas Montas is old enough now that he could handle 200 innings and will almost certainly pitch 180 innings if he's capable of it. And Montas was just a dominating pitcher last year. Um, and the suspension uh, helped him as far as uh, his perceived value is this year, but I think he's going to start going higher and higher, um, as he should, because he's nasty and he knows what he's doing, and it's there in the numbers. And to me, 
Um, he's a key guy to have this year. If you can get him as your number two or even number three pitcher, if he's your number three pitcher, boy, are you sitting pretty. Yeah, the last time I looked, uh, I think Montas has actually snuck ahead a little bit. Uh, they're within four or five picks of each other now, but I think Frankie Montas has actually moved up a, a little bit past uh, Lozardo. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. The ADPs, uh, speaking of which, put Lance Lynn as the 49th pitcher off the board, which you say is too low. Where do you think Lynn should be slotted and why? Well, I think he should be around number 25. Um and I think people are shying away from him because he's old. Uh, but he had a career high in velocity. and uh, That's not irrelevant. Uh, you know, that, it doesn't, what is irrelevant is your age. If, you know, he wasn't doing that when he was 27. He's doing it now. Um, and I think the market is a little timid, playing it halfway. Uh, but he was one of the best pitchers in baseball last year. And I think that even treating him at number 25 could be underrating him. But it's pretty much guaranteed to get him. So I kind of like that. Why is it going to be a good year to get Kenta Maeda? Because nobody ever knows what to do with him, but he's always good. Um, And I think you have to figure that if you're good, you're going to pitch. The fact that the Dodgers don't seem to like to start him in the postseason is irrelevant to us as long as they pitch him in the regular season, which they pretty much have to do. And he's got all those things going for him. He's got the great team. He's got the Dodger Stadium. He's got the, uh, you know, the, the NL West, Paul Park, if you stay out of Coors. And piece of cake. Take him. Yeah, around 200th uh, overall pick in uh, ADPs, which is seems like an opportunity, all right. Uh, lots of talk that Aaron Nola has to rebound from a disappointing 2019. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about there's a natural or inevitable regression. You're not so sure, though. Uh, where are you on Aaron Nola? I'm down on him. Um, and I was high on him last year, and it was dead wrong. And um, but I'm going with it because I don't like his hard hit rate. I mean, it went way up, and that makes me nervous. And, it, you know, it wasn't from just like the, it was from three years before. For three years, his hard hit rate was 31%. Last year was almost 40%. Um, and when that happens to a pitcher, they usually start to dribble, and sure enough, his walks were up. Um, I you know, maybe he could bounce back, but... People are taking him as an ace, and I think that has a good chance to be a mistake. Yeah, he is going pretty high, and and this raises an interesting point that you've used uh, throughout your analyses, Gene, and that is uh, that the combination of two factors from StatCast data uh, about a pitcher, the first one being average exit velocity, and just as important, the second one being the number of of hits allowed or the percentage of hits allowed that were over 95 miles an hour. So they're two different things combining to give you a pretty good view. And Aaron Nola's view using those metrics, not so good. You know, for a long time, I, I, I used to say, don't use one number. You know, we have to put a number on a guy in an auction, but we don't like doing it um, because it's so, it's so vague and it's so prone to error, plus or minus. Um, but in a way, these average exit velocity and 95-plus percentages, they're kind of like the holy grail. Uh, not exclusively, I'm exaggerating, but 
this is what we've been going for, um, and they're really important numbers. I think they they are the numbers that, that should be the starting point of our analysis for hitters and for pitchers. And sure, there are lots of other factors. Don't rely on one particular number, but start there because that's telling you what this what the true talent level is here. More, more than one number ever told us before. Hyun Jin Ryu moved to Toronto in the offseason, and right away, of course, the experts were cautioning about a park effect issue. Your analysis is that it hardly matters. Uh, why not? Well, I mean, I expect him to be a little worse, too. But look where he's starting from. You know, we're not talking about an ERA of three. Um, you know, for the last, uh, what, two years, 265 innings, you know, his ERA is 2.21, not 3.21. Uh, an ERA of 3.5 is about as bad as he can be. Um, he's going as a number three pitcher. Um, you do have to worry about his quantity. Um, but as a number three pitcher, you worry less. If he's a, your number two pitcher, I think you gotta you got to work to make that up with your next couple of picks. But this guy is a really good pitcher, period. He's going to be a really good pitcher no matter where he is. Sure, he's going to suffer a little bit. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. He's still going to be good. Going in the ninth round, and as somebody who lives near Toronto, and so I get more than my share of Toronto media, I think there's like one cautionary note here, and that is that the Blue Jays are not playing to be good this year. They're playing to be good next year. And they've already told their fans that it's 2021 for us, so we're building and developing and taking a look at what we've got and all these kind of things. And I think that means that if there's the slightest indication that Ryu's got a health issue, even so that something that appears fairly minor, they are going to shut him down because they don't want to risk 2021 to get a few extra innings in a meaningless season for them in 2020. That's a good point um, and, and worth remembering. However, don't be surprised if they come out of the gate strong. You know, any team that has that much young talent is capable of, you know, being a year early on their on their projections, and so I think we should balance that. You know, watch both things. Oh, for sure. I think that if all those four young players that we talked about earlier on the batting side, if they all kind of hold their own or maybe take a little bit of a step up, they're going to score runs, and uh, I, their bullpen is usually pretty strong. Uh, I like Toronto as a dark horse to be more competitive than we think. Just keep in mind that if if it doesn't go that way, they're going to be looking for opportunities to either skip Ryu uh, every so often or uh, shut him down entirely if they're not at all if they're not entirely convinced that he's okay. You're not betting on Chris Sale as a number two starter, even. What's your concern with one of the established aces in uh, baseball lack of velocity I, I mean i think that the odds strongly favor that sale is never going to be what he was before i'm not saying he's going to be bad but he was bad last year and they kept telling us how how good he was going to be he's going to turn it around but he kept on giving up home runs and he's much more hittable than he used to be and don't forget his era last year was 4.40 he could be a lot better and still not be an ace or even a number two pitcher. And I think the burden of proof is now on him with his velocity down. Baseball HQ set his strikeout projection at 250. Uh, you take the over or the under? 
under. A lot or a little? A lot. When I listen to a lot of fantasy analysts, Gene, I hear doubts about Jose or Keedy's place in the Houston rotation, but you don't have those doubts. Why not? Well, because they don't look five pitches better than he is to start. I mean, they may not have three. Uh, you know, he's certainly, I mean, to me, he's right up there with McCullers. Um, I, to me, he's automatic that he's going to be in the rotation. And given what he did last year, um, I think he's going to be a good pitcher. And I think he's a, he's definitely a target of mine. It's a great place to pitch if you're a fly baller who can keep the ball off the lines. Uh, but if you can't, then you're going to give up some cheap home runs. But, you know, who doesn't give up cheap home runs? 4.2 walk rate, you know, as a rookie. And he's got a great slider. Um, I think that uh, he's old enough that he could pitch 180 innings, too. So I think that he's uh, he's much less uncertain than, than meets the eye. I agree with you. Uh, I think Jose Arquiti should be on everybody's target list this year, especially where he's going. And I think at like he's in the two thirties kind of for ADP. And as things solidify and it becomes more apparent that he is probably the third or maybe the second best pitcher in that uh, club, then uh, people are going to start bumping him up pretty quickly. Uh, you called Luke Weaver an ace, and I thought Luke Weaver really. Well, I think he's got ace potential. Um, I really like uh, his control improvement last year, um, especially in a, in a better hitter's environment. Um, I think his strikeouts are good. Um, you know, strikeout-to-walk ratio means less than it used to, be, and the reason for that is because it more reflects uh, the hitter's approach than it does the pitcher's talent, or less so. I mean, it still does, you know, indicate the pitcher's talent, but a lot of it is the hitter's approach, especially for strikeouts. And this guy was mighty effective in uh, in 12 starts, and it's because he had a much better cutter, and he had a lefty problem, and the cutter solves that problem. And so I think that, you know, if that, if his, you know, 5.4% walk rate holds up, he is going to be an ace. Oh, for sure. I think that's exactly right. Uh, very little difference between Shane Bieber, you say, at starting pitcher number 8, and Brandon Woodruff at starting pitcher number 25. If that's the case, we should be targeting Woodruff, but why do you think so? Well, I also think that Bieber has a little bit of a problem, and that's the, the average exit velocity problem. Uh, when he has to throw a strike, they hit him hard. And he's a really good pitcher. I'm not saying he's going to be bad. But I would urge the listeners to go to Baseball Savant and have a look at the pitchers with the highest exit velocity. They are the top 50. There are two good pitchers in the top 50, Bieber and Patrick Corbett. Everyone else is a stiff. It doesn't mean that Bieber's going to be bad, but it means that he's being a little bit overrated, whereas all those other pitchers in between... Um, while not perhaps number one pitchers are good number two pitchers, and that includes Woodruff, and I'm certainly not alone in uh, in targeting him this year based on what he's already done and the possibility of slight improvement. You said, Gene, that that was particularly the case for Shane Bieber in situations where he had to come in. So did you look separately at his average exit velocity on 2-0 counts, 3-1 counts? Uh, no. But I did look at his 
numbers when he's behind in the count, um, and his numbers when he's behind in the count are not good. I mean, nobody's numbers are good, but his are particularly bad. And I think that's what, you know, that's how that manifests itself. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And Gene, you write regularly at, at The Athletic. It's the online sports magazine. It's a terrific product. I love The Athletic, and not because you're in it, although that helps. Uh, you've started your rotation at The Athletic, you mentioned? Yeah, yesterday, uh, two columns, last year's bums, and then targets to look for after the top 350. Um, and I'll be keeping them up. Uh, I'll have several more articles before the season starts, and then a weekly column during the season. And I ask anybody who's not already a subscriber to subscribe. Uh, they have the best best beat writers, uh, terrific fantasy analysis from an absolutely stunning crew of uh of writers, and you can't get too much good information. And I'm not saying it because I'm in it. I would do it. I would pay double that if I wasn't in it. Yeah, I have to say I love the athletic too, and of course they have some high-profile columnists like you and and others, name guys. They but the to me one of the real strengths of the of the site is the fact that they as their business model, went out and found experienced sports writers covering particular teams often uh, in all of the major league cities. So it's remember back in the old days when uh, information was so hard to come by and we you'd sit there and wait for those Tuesday and Wednesday USA Todays to come out because they had the wrap-ups from around the league from uh, from the beat writers and stories and stuff like that. Now you get it every day. And uh, uh, and that's the beauty of it, boy. You really can stay on top of the news, uh, especially injuries and changes in playing time and movement in the batting order, which is so important. It's a really valuable resource from a lot of different angles. Yeah, it, as I say, I would pay double that. And another cool thing is you can ask the beat writers fantasy-related questions, and they will answer you. You know, who's playing? What does it look like? What's the manager saying? You know, in-season play, wow, that's important. Well, Gene, before the season, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about players uh, that you think will be boons and banes for the fantasy season. Uh, any rationale you like, uh, you can repeat, guys, we talked about earlier if you want, but let's start with the boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter that you've really got your eye on as a boon? I love Byron Buxton. Uh, strikeouts down from 20 down to 23% from 30. Um, that's so important for him. Um, they brought in Tory Hunter to work with him. Um, that's perfect. Um, Buxton is a hard worker, and he's got a really good chance. Just keep him in the lineup. He could be the best speed guy without with a little bit of pop out of anybody this year. Um, and where he's going, grab him, baby. 11th round, uh a National League hitter who's a boon? Uh, I like Javier Baez. Uh, I mean, I think he has established that he's a 280 hitter. Um, terrible high ratio to the contrary. You know, he's done it for five years. I think he's going to run more with Madden God. Um, no one ever doubted his power. Um, I think he's going in the third round. He's been a first rounder before. No reason why he can't be again. 
I really like that thinking. A third round guy who could be a first round ceiling. Uh, boy, those are the kind of guys you have to look at. But you're going to have to be willing to take the risk of of putting that bet down uh, when there's going to be other alternatives in that same spot. Uh, over to the mound, uh, American League pitcher who's a boon. I like Yogi Chiritos. Uh I think anybody who's throwing a splitter these days has a little bit of an advantage because so few pitchers throw that pitch now. Uh, he threw more last year, and his control got better. Uh, I like that. Uh, and so he's a guy that's also not going that high, easily available as a number four starter uh, with the Rays. You know, they're going to treat him right. Um, nice nice back-end kind of, kind of guy or bridge between front and back-end. Nice whip, and it hasn't always paid off in the kind of uh, of uh, ERA that you might hope for, but... Uh... I like to look at WHIP first and ERA second because I think uh, WHIP is a good indicator of potential in ERA at least. Uh, so Yanni Trinos fits that bill as well. 20th round looks like a, a potential bargain. And uh, National League pitcher, Gene, who's a boon? Well, speaking of high WHIPs, um, I think Dakota Hudson is going way too low. Um, I, I think the chance that this guy is going to get better is really good because – he, he's got the, the sinker. It doesn't get swings and misses, but it's effective in the real game. Um, so the chances are that his walks are going to come down. They were going to have a really good whip. but And then he has to allow fewer than 22 home runs. I think he's a really good comp to his namesake, Tim Hudson, who was always a guy that was better in real life than rotisserie. But if you took him in the right spot, maybe he's going to the reserve rounds. So I think you got to at least take him as a home store play and, and let the chips fall. Gene McCaffrey's Boons for 2020, Byron Buxton of Minnesota, Javier Baez of the Cubs, Yanni Chirinos from Tampa, Dakota Hudson of St. Louis. Uh, Gene, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious in 2020 drafting. Let's start with the American League and a Bain hitter. Uh, Malik Smith, um, his defense was much worse last year. He doesn't get on base. He's got Julio Rodriguez and Kalenic, uh breathing down his neck. I think there's a really good chance that he is not playing as a regular by July. And so, you know, I mean, he's a limited player anyway. He could turn out to be a complete bust. In the National League, a Bane hitter? Uh, we spoke about Hampson before, and he could be a really good guy, but I think to bet him as he's going to be a really good guy is unwise because the Rockies are wedded to the hot hand, and if he doesn't start hot, he's not going to play. And also bear in mind that the Rockies, 22 of their first 35 games are on the road, and that's a setup for any of their hitters not to be good to start the season. Back to the mound we go, an American League pitcher who's a Bane. Uh, Emilio Pagan, no knock on his ability. Um, I think he could be a great closer if he was the closer, but the Rays had 46 saves last year, and he got 20 of them. And I don't see any reason why they're going to do anything differently, which makes him not really a number two closer. He's a number three closer. If you can get him, is that okay? But be prepared if he's your number two closer. Don't stop looking. Never stop looking. Uh, and finally, a National League pitcher who's a Bane? Uh, Robbie Ray. Uh, I think that his velocity is down. Uh, 
I think that makes it easier to hit him. I think that he's got a great breaking ball, um, but it's rarely a strike. Um, with all those walks, it makes it easier or harder for him to go deep into games. And it's easier for the hitters to look to uh, start taking his breaking ball more and more. And I think he's got more downside than upside in 2020. I agree with you. I'm on the record as saying I don't think Robbie Ray will ever be a member of any of my fantasy teams. Uh, you got to love the strikeouts, but the price in other regards is just way too high, and he goes too high because of the strikeouts. Yeah, pass. Uh, Gene McCaffrey's Baines, Malik Smith of Seattle, Garrett Hampson of Colorado, uh, Emilio Pagan of Tampa, and Robbie Ray of Arizona. Uh, Gene, this has been fantastic. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Gene McCaffrey. Theathletic.com. Uh, we just dropped the draft kit. Uh, it's spectacular. I, I haven't even. I'm about a third of the way through all the other writers, and I'm just, I'm just picking up every single article. I'm picking up something good or more than one good thing that I hadn't thought of. And uh, we got some great writers, uh, and I'll be there. I hope to see you there. And please comment. And you have a Twitter feed at Wise Guy Gene. And that's a good Twitter feed as well. It'll keep you up to date on when Gene's publishing and uh, observations during the year as well. Gene, this has been a, a treat. I knew it was going to be fun. It always is fun. I do appreciate you taking the time, and thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here with you, Patrick. Um, this is one of my favorite things of the year, and thank you for having me and, uh, from the bottom of my heart. And we'll see you in New York City for Tout Wars. All right. Gene McCaffrey is a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. And that's Baseball HQ ready for Tuesday, February 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday edition of the show. It was Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, a fantasy writer for The Athletic. Gene is a great columnist at The Athletic, a tremendous player analyst, and a good friend of mine and the show's. I'm Patrick Abbott, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. Sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or iTunes Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you... Give us a review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, helps new listeners find us, and that keeps the podcast growing, which helps keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Remember, 10% discount at the Baseball HQ site with promo code PATRICK, and be ready on Friday when we'll launch our 2020 Friday News and Notes editions of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.